thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Sweeping new guidelines from the White House designed to slow the rapid spread of coronavirus. My phone has been ringing off the hook with a number of local officials saying people are very, very upset. They just shut down the country. Our fight against an invisible enemy has turned life in America upside down. Down, 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 down. Looking for a diversion from this crazy, chaotic, uncertain new world we live in? Well, you found the right place. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and this week, we conclude F-15 Month with a look at the jet affectionately nicknamed the Mud Hen. You've been asking for it. Well, you got it. Here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, it's F-15 Month. Every episode for the month of March is dedicated to this world-class fighter. Is it old? Mm, yeah. Is it lethal? Oh, yeah. And now, the man who's never flown the F-15, your host, Vincent Aiello. <laughs> well, that's true, Jim. I never flew the F-15, but I don't know. After the last two episodes with Spider-Man Stretch and our guest co-host, B.S., I sure feel like I know a lot about it now. Here on episode 76, we're rounding out F-15 month by exploring the E-version with a current Strike Eagle pilot and Wizzo crew. We'll get to that interview in just a little bit. And for you digital combat simulator players out there, stay tuned after the interview for information on a campaign giveaway that may interest you. Anyway, hello and welcome to the show, everyone. I am your host, Jello, and wow, what a month it's been. For those of you listening sometime down the road in the future, you might remember or have read in the history books about the COVID-19 pandemic that turned the world on its head in early 2020. Well, we're living it right now, and it's unlike anything I've ever experienced in my half century on Earth, I'll tell you. Cities, entire countries on lockdown, concerts, air shows, sporting events canceled, travel restricted, emergency measures enacted. These are clearly unprecedented times, and needless to say, my London plans for the end of the month are canceled that I mentioned on a previous episode, as was the El Centro Air Show, and I think for right now, all air shows. We had hoped to meet some of you out there at the Blue Angel opener in mid-March in the Southern Imperial Valley of California, but you know they canceled that as they have so many, and it's all crazy. I don't know, but in an effort to keep some normalcy, you know, we're going to try to keep the lights on here at your favorite podcast and provide you distraction and we'll keep it going as long as we possibly can. And I hope whatever situation or circumstances you find yourself in, you're making the most of it as well. Well, it's just me this week and we do have a couple announcements. Our occasional co-host Boat recently posted amusing on our website in response to a listener taking issue on an answer he gave on a previous episode about which is more important in a dogfight, one or two circle performance. So if you want to know more about that or even one and two circle, what that means, then head over to fighterpilotpodcast.com and check it out on our musings tab, which is just simply our blog, frankly. 
Also, several listeners have responded lately that on previous episodes, we missed notable movie appearances for the various aircraft we were discussing. Andrew Greenlaw from Ottawa, for example, pointed out that the A-4 was featured at the beginning of The Sum of All Fears from 2002, which is true. Totally forgot that one. Edward Chang, he's a San Diego-based writer, and you're going to hear about him a little bit later. He mentioned that the tornado was featured in the aptly named Blue Tornado from 1991. Never heard of that one, Edward. And then another listener, I forget who, pointed out that this month's favorite, the F-15, was featured in Captain Marvel from 2019, and I never saw that one either. Speaking of previous episodes, we received an email from Rand Barton who says, I'm listening to your A4 episode and wanted to mention that the McDonnell F3H Demon and the Grumman F11F Tiger are also both known to have flown with their wings folded. As you recall, we were talking about the F8 Crusader and A7 Corsair flying with their wings folded. Apparently these did too. Thank you, Rand. Had no idea. Did not know that. All right, and then once in a while, we receive really just awesome correspondences that are so heartwarming, we just have to share it. And in light of everything going on in the world, if you need some encouragement, I want to read this anonymous email for you. The writer states, I am a 23-year-old who graduated from college two years ago with very little direction or purpose. I was caught between preparing for law school and wanting to do what would make more difference in the world. No comment on my part on that. Anyway, I decided then to join the military and was drawn to aviation. Now get this. It took me two years, he says, of weight loss, one surgery, four separate medical waivers, two different eye examinations across my state, three separate trips to MEPS, which is a processing station basically, and a lot of worry to finally get offered a commission as an aviator, which is awesome. During those two years, there were many points where I started losing hope, but your podcast gave me so much insight into the world that I was trying so earnestly to join that kept me, my passion and career alive. It helped keep my interest strong enough to not lose hope or give up. I hope in the same way you all helped me that my story may help others. If you understand yourself and you know that aviation is right for you, you don't give up because I didn't and it has worked out for me long after many people told me I could quit feeling like I had done all I could do. Thank you for everything you do and know that your podcast has made a substantial impact on my life. I hope that I can honor the tradition of Navy aviators just like you have. Well, (laughs) You know, honestly, when I started this podcast over two years ago now, I figured I'd have a little fun. I even hoped I might add value to people's lives, but I never expected feedback like this. And it just makes the effort so worthwhile. I am humbled. I just think that whatever you, dear listener, may be facing or however insurmountable the obstacles in your life may seem, especially during these uncertain times, I hope you will take encouragement from this brave young person because you got to get after it. I mean, this is the one life we got to live it. We can't just sit and moan about our circumstances. You got to grab it and go. That's where we're at. That is the life we're living right now. So anyway, moving on, let's do some listener questions. They're building up. And so I'm going to tackle a few here on my own today. First, I have two related questions that I will answer together. The first is a phone call. Let's give it a listen. Hi, Joe. My name's uh, Alan Scheidman out in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Long-time listener, first-time caller, and just want to say thank you for all that you do. It's awesome. I'm an aspiring uh, pilot, preferably fighter pilot, but serve my country regardless. I'm 24, so my days are numbered, if you will. 
I'll be joining ROTC here pretty soon in the fall semester. And I was just curious. So I noticed in all of your episodes, especially, for example, the F4 Phantom 2 episode with the singers, and he was, you know, talking about a story or anything else. It seems like every pilot, or widow, if you will, um, is very well-spoken and good speakers. Is that more of your editing kind of stuff, or is that just most pilots who are well-educated, or widows for that matter, well-educated, just smart guys and good speakers? Just kind of curious on your thoughts on that. Thanks. Love the show. Keep it up. You're awesome. I appreciate it. All right. Along the same lines, I have an email from Stephen Todd who states, it seems aviators, fighter pilots in particular, like a couple well-known former SEALs, become very effective motivational speakers and management trainers in business when they retire from the service. Can you explain what it is about aviators that makes them so good in this role? Well, absolutely, Alan and Stephen. I won't speak for the SEALs, but for aviators, I think it's twofold. Number one, life experiences, and number two, being comfortable in front of an audience. Now, I made it through flight school and worked hard, and then I went out and landed on aircraft carriers, including at night during pitching deck. I don't know what else there is in life that's going to be more difficult than that, honestly. When I went to the airlines, I didn't totally blow it off, but I didn't get too up in arms about the training because I figured, how hard can it be? Everybody's doing it. I just got to figure it out. And indeed, it wasn't that difficult. But when you've done the different things that military aviators do and face the kind of trials and tribulations and watch in some cases your friends die, it changes you and it makes you very competent and confident. That's my thought on that. And the second thing, of course, is that we are comfortable briefing and debriefing, sometimes as little as one other person, but in other times a whole room full of folks. And so you very quickly get comfortable in your own skin in front of people. And I think those two things are very transferable to the outside world afterwards. And indeed, to your point, many people make a handsome living afterwards doing various things. Great question. All right, next, let's take another phone call. Hi, this is Stephen Hampton from Merced, California. I got a question. You said that you fought a strike eagle. Was he giving you a good fight, or was he a good, uh, easy target to shoot down uh, in simulated combat? Thank you. Have a nice day. All right. Thanks for the question, Stephen. Uh, there in Merced, I spent many years from you, actually, not far down the road in the Central California Valley at Naval Air Station Lamore. And, you know, I wish I had a better memory because there are certain things I just don't remember well. And then there's other idiotic things that I can't get out of my head. I don't know if you have the same problem. But... I do recall it was on the East Coast, which would have been my first tour in VFA 86 out of Jacksonville, Florida. And I'm pretty sure it was a dark gray eagle, as we'll learn about today. So it was a strike eagle. The only thing I remember is that we ended up in a situation where I was able to maneuver for a gun's tracking shot. And I ended up getting too close inside the 500 foot safety bubble minimum. And so we came back and had to debrief that as being an other for that event. And that stuck out in my mind because when you are bore sighting someone to try to gun them, you're closing the separation very rapidly. And I just remember suddenly thinking, wow, that's a really big airplane. I need to maneuver out of the way here. And I think for them too, they wondered when this young guy was going to quit pointing at them and make a safe pass happen, which we did. But again, I remember coming back and debriefing that extensively. So other than that, I don't remember too much about it. That's just how my memory works, unfortunately. All right. Finally, Jake from London wants to know, can you listen to music on a flight? 
Well, not normally, Jake. There's just so much going on. You don't want the extra distraction. But on benign flights, maybe cross countries or just other transient transit, I should say, flights, then yeah, you can sneak some uh, earbuds or something under your helmet and listen. I used to actually do that on the long cross-country flights I did at the end of my career, going from San Diego to places on the East Coast. And you're just sitting up at altitude anyway, listening to air traffic control. It's not like a training or a combat flight where you really have to have all your wits about you. I mean, obviously you're paying attention, but I'm saying a little bit of background music there was okay. And then there was one time, I think I mentioned this before on this show, maybe it was a different podcast I was a guest on. I don't remember, but we did from Fallon, east of Reno, Nevada, a cross transit, if you will, out to the Pacific Ocean to start a low-level route near Big Sur. And I happened to put in some uh, headphone things, and I was listening to just some random music. And right as we started the low-level, we were in the F-16s that the Navy flies, the A's and B's. And you know that Iron Eagle song from Queen? I think it's One Vision, something like that. The song that the uh, main star, Doug, plays when he's flying around in the F-16, except he had a tape recorder. That came on right as we started the low level, and I just had to laugh under my mask, and uh, it made it very memorable. And I remember landing and telling my two brothers, who have always been such big fans of my career, and we loved that movie when we were younger and didn't know any better. You know, on that particular training flight, there's not a lot to talk about when you're doing the uh, low level, so I had it very low in the background. But yes, I did have wingmen, and, and a little bit of music there was fun. But now for the most part in training and combat you don't want to be distracted all right that'll do it for listener questions for this week thank you to everyone who submits questions and if you've not heard yours addressed on the show please be patient with us we'll get to them eventually i do keep a list and i keep them in order of when i receive them uh, except for our patreon guys they get headline privileges and sometimes i'm simply just waiting for someone with the expertise to answer the questions so i've got a couple on for example fuel tanks and the self-sealing and uh, some of the VX squadrons and different questions. And I just need someone to help me out before I get to this. All right. Without further ado, then let's get to the feature interview on the F-15E Strike Eagle. And again, you DCS players stick around for a giveaway announcement right after the interview. All right, F-15 month continues. Today we are discussing the F-15E Strike Eagle. We have a pilot and Wizzo team here to help us do that. Uh, we'll start with a pilot, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Turner, call sign TAC. How you doing, TAC? Doing great. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. And with you is Captain Mark Smith, call sign SMAC. How's it going, SMAC? Great. Happy to be here. Excellent. Well, I wish we could all be in person, but alas, my day job has prohibited me from coming out to join you guys. You are out near Eglin Air Force Base in the panhandle of Florida. I am here in San Diego, and through the miracle of technology, hopefully we can make it sound like we're all in the same room. Anyway, you two guys have been flying the F-15E for a while, I presume. Why don't we find out all about you? Tack, we'll start with you. Where are you from? What's your alma mater? And what have you done so far in the Air Force? Yeah, you bet. So I grew up as a well, semi-brat, if you will. Uh, <laughs> so my dad was active duty for a while when I was real young. When I was about six or seven years old, we moved to Colorado Springs and did my remaining of my growing up uh, in Colorado Springs. So that's still home for us, even though I haven't lived there in 16, 17 years. Went to the Air Force Academy, so that was alma mater, not too far from home, and then uh, went off to a flying career after that. Uh, so yeah, big picture on career. Went to pilot training right away at Vance Air Force Base right in uh, middle America there in Enid, Oklahoma. And then uh, right out of pilot training, tracked to the Strike Eagle. So got to fly that airplane in operational 
for about uh, six years uh, with my first assignment out in Lakenheath, England, and then another assignment teaching at the RTU or the RAG equivalent, and that's at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. My career took a shift, and SMAC's going to be a little bit similar there, but in about 2009, I was selected to go to test pilot school, so Spent a year penance getting a master's in some nerd stuff in engineering, and then uh, went out uh, to test pilot school, which is out in Edwards Air Force Base. So that's out in the, the Mojave Desert in California. A year out there doing uh, the test pilot thing and learning how to test airplanes for a living, and then got back into the Strike Eagle down here at Eglin Air Force Base, where we test all variants of the F-15. Did that for a couple of years, and then uh, actually transitioned and flew F-35s for two years out at, back out at Edwards. And then just a couple of years ago, came right back here, flying the variants of the F-15 again, including the Strike Eagle. So that's brought me back to Eglin and where we are today. Outstanding. Okay, so you have some time in the, I don't know what else to call it, but the regular Eagle as well, the A through D models? I do. Uh, so probably around uh, 250 or so hours in the single seat or the D model, which is the two-seat variant of that air-to-air version. Okay. Great. Well, if there are any parallels that you think will help us, you've listened to Stretch and Spider-Man's episode just preceding yours. That would be great if you could point those out. All right, Smack, let's go over to you. Same question. Where are you from? How'd you end up in the military? Where did you go to school? And what have you been doing? Yeah, you bet. Uh, so I'm from Kansas, born and raised in Wichita. No, uh, no Air Force history really in my family. Went to college and just got to know some guys in Air, Air Force ROTC there. Uh, at Kansas State University, and ended up doing OTS after college, uh, getting a WIZO spot, and then uh, from there into the Air Force. So followed a pretty standard training progression. So CISO uh, training in Pensacola, Florida, right into the Strike Eagle, so up to Seymour Johnson. My first ops assignment was in Mountain Home, Idaho. Three years there with a combat deployment over to OIR. Back to teach at the FTU for a couple years, and then selected for TPS. So you're at Edwards, going through the training curriculum there, flying a bunch of different airplanes, learning a ton. Got here to Eglin, uh, and then excited to be in the test uh, community at the 40th. Oh, I can imagine. Okay, so you said OIR. You and I recognize that as Operation Inherent Resolve. I think the quick summary is what? The battle against ISIS? Yes, that's right. So in Iraq and Syria, as okay. that was developing uh, over the past few years. Okay. Now, Smack, before we get into the meat of the discussion, if you don't mind, I didn't warn you I was going to ask this, but when you were coming into the service, was the plan to be a WIZO? Was that just what you wanted to do or did something drive you to that? And the reason I ask is we have a lot of young people who listen to this show and some of them think the sky is going to fall if they don't end up being a pilot or get exactly what they want. Is that what you wanted? Or if not, what can you tell us about that journey? Yeah, you bet. So, I majored in physics, interested in science, obviously ended up here with TPS, but I kind of realized towards the end of college that I didn't want to just be in a lab. I wanted to kind of get into the flying community in the Air Force, and that was a an awesome job opportunity. So when I applied to OTS, there were no pilots positions on the OTS board. So hmm. in terms of advice, I guess, obviously the Air Force Academy and then ROTC kind of take the fill of pilot slots. So... Uh, no pilot slots available just based on the manning requirements at the time. So a uh, Wizzo spot was available and said, that's a great opportunity to go fly based on my timing and everything. So I'll go that route. The problem is if you go that way, there's right. a lot of different options. So 
Uh, you just have to work hard to get to the one fighter option as a as a Wizzo. The Strike Eagle's the only <laughs> thing, other, except for uh, bombers or navs on other airframes. Well, it sounds like it worked out pretty well for you. Is there, I know in the Navy, it's not often, but occasionally there is uh, what we would call the NFO to pilot transition. Is there a possibility at some point you could end up transitioning or are you pretty happy where you're at? Yeah, that's definitely a possibility and has been throughout my career up to this point, but I'm happy uh, with where I'm at and uh, the job duties I've got dropping weapons uh, is a pretty great full-time job. All right. Well, thanks for that. And again, we get so many questions from folks that want to know about, well, what happens if this happens? And we say on the show, hey, you know what? Everyone's journey is a little bit different. And in your case, it had to do with OTS. That's interesting. Never heard that. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, let's jump into the Strike Eagle. Uh, You guys both, I think, listened to Spider-Man and Stretch. And although they never said it, you know, the expression, not a pound for air to ground, I guess what I'm wondering is, how did someone decide to take this proven air-to-air platform, the F-15, and adapt it into the multi-role, which has become the Strike Eagle? I mean, it does it very well, but I'm just curious how that came to be. Anybody know? So, this is Tack, and and I don't know all the details of that discussion, but I do know that soon after the the C model, or the light gray, it's, it's commonly referred to, or just the Eagle... It was certainly right away just very much seen for how advantageous it was and all the stuff that Spider-Man and Stretch talked about. And that was the high fast, the agility to get to those, the ability of the radar, and then the ability to then get into the close-in kind of knife fight and actually BFM really well. And all those things were looked at and it, it did that great, but there's still room for, you know, it's this big airframe. And uh, so shortly after when we're looking at uh, or when the Air Force was looking at a replacement for the F-111, which was kind of getting up there in years, you know how the Air Force usually does it is a bunch of alternatives and <laughs> just taking a proven fighter like the F-15, even though it was still young, This we're talking early 80s when this discussion was happening. So the light gray eagle was only, you know, five to eight years in its maturity. That was one of the alternatives. And they said, hey, this has so much more power to spare. It has a big airframe. And if we put we'll talk about probably more is conformal fuel tanks on it and some weapons and two seats we can missionize this thing to be uh, a replacement and hopefully an upgrade over the f-111 so that's kind of the genesis that came about and that was in the early 80s uh, where there was a an original demonstrator but then uh, it wasn't until the late 80s that it finally came out of test around 89 i think we ioc'd it came to be the dark gray as we know it today and the paint by the way is that is there a reason for that other than it helps us to distinguish between the two or was there a, a, some sort of tactical reason for that? Uh, it's definitely intentional. So the light gray, based off looking up at the light gray, it's more difficult to see. And that's why you see a lot of fighters that are air-to-air interceptors in a lighter paint scheme, just because it's harder to see against a blue sky background. Alternatively, against something that flies lower, sometimes a darker background if you're flying over land or even dark water is is more difficult to pick up so having that air to ground mission and possibly flying down low it's you know you see that common type paint scheme across a lot of fighters well and that makes sense i think the tornado in general is a bit darker and it it is also like you said kind of down rooting around obviously i sorry it was a funny one uh i I realize it's intentional of course they don't just pull out whatever color and start spraying (laughs) it out I just never knew why one was the light gray and one was the dark gray, but uh, I appreciate that. It wasn't just to call it something different. 
<laughs> okay. Well, yeah, that was the question, I suppose. So the F-111, yes, long in the tooth and long gone at this point. But now as you look at the Air Force inventory, you know, you've got the A-10 and we've had that aircraft on the show. You've got the F-16, you've got bombers. Where do you guys fit into all that? Like if you go to a red flag, what is the Strike Eagle going to do? I, I mean, it can do close air support, but I'm guessing that's not necessarily its bread and butter. Deep air strike, or are we looking for double digit SAMs, or what's a bread and butter mission for a Strike Eagle? That's kind of a couple questions uh, rolled into one. So bread and butter right now, based on the current operational environment, is close air support, but that doesn't tie into a large force exercise like Red Flag would. Really on the Scud Hunt Day is one of the main Strike Eagle missions where we can kind of utilize the crew coordination as well as all the sensors and weapons that go into a Red Flag that the Strike Eagle can bring. Additionally, at Red Flag, we'll participate where we go in low using our terrain-following radar to strike some targets and then egress the same way. So kind of escaping under the radar coverage while additionally avoiding kind of the air threat. So being able to to utilize that dual-role nature of fighting our way in air-to-air and still serving an air-to-ground mission kind of touches on some of the systems that we have that I'm sure we'll expand upon in a little bit. Okay, so you have the ability to basically just be a bomb truck. Again, we'll get to that, but also I would think you can fight your way in and fight your way out. In the Navy, we would call it a self-escort strike. Do you guys, unlike the light gray, who, again, doesn't want to do air-to-ground, does Strike Eagle community do some air-to-air? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So it depends on where you're stationed and, you know, really where the Air Force needs certain squadrons to train to certain missions, but... One of the things, getting back to your previous question on how the Strike Eagle came about, it was to make a dual role fighter, but really part of the requirements were to keep all the advantages of the F-15C and lose none of them. Uh We did lose a little bit as far as capability and speed and agility just based off of having a heavier loadout and, and some conformal fuel tanks, but it was to keep all of that. In fact, in some cases, it actually upgraded it because at the time, you know, the radar had an upgrade over the C model and and some of the engines were bigger than the, the C models at the time as well. So, and that has continued and we've got engine upgrades, we've gotten radar upgrades throughout time and it's proven to be a, a really good air-to-air interceptor, I would say as well. BFM, it's not as strong for the energy reasons and the drag reasons. Really what our limitation probably is, is that we have to do the same thing as, you know, a Super Hornet or a Strike Eagle, or excuse me, a uh, an F-16. And we have to practice to all of those different mission sets. Mm-hmm. And it's really where you're honing those skills. That's where the F-15C is so good at what they do because they train to that same thing day in and day out, where we spend a little bit of time on air to air and then a little bit of time doing casts or maybe... 10 years focused on CAS and some of those other skill sets uh, might drop off a little, but the, it's usually not an airplane limitation. It's more on on where we choose to spend our time. No doubt. And I think a lot of that is just based on current events. You know, for the last 20 plus years, it's been the war on terror and mostly there's been very little, if any, air-to-air threat. And so it's uh, very much the air-to-surface centric roles that we've been doing. So, all right. So the Strike Eagle, I mean, really almost any air-to-surface role. So close air support, deep air support, interdiction, armed overwatch. I believe uh, as we get into the weapons a little bit here later, even some maritime strikes. So if it's slinging mud, you guys can do it, huh? 
Yeah, that's right. And and that the great thing is has been how it's been able just to adapt to the different mission sets that you know the Air Force has thrown at us over time. Because you know originally it was you know an F one eleven a a interdiction type platform with maybe some close air support and uh, some air to air roles. But uh, as we've been able to focus upgrades and, and training on um, on the mission set at hand, it's really proved to be a a strong performer in in most of the most of the areas we've been called to do. So absolutely. All right. So as we move on to variants, of course, we talked last episodes on the A through D and now we have the E. I wonder, obviously there's a bunch of different, what should we call them? Export variants of this aircraft. And they name them such for the different countries. So you've got F-15I going to Israel, the F-15K, I think it's called a Slam Eagle for Korea, the S, the SG, SA, QA for Saudi and Singapore and Qatar. Is there any talk, do you know, about like, say, an F-15F or any other upgrades for U.S. forces or for you guys? Yeah, so the uh, there's some new development where the F-15EX kind of is a new upgraded version, kind of piggybacking on some modern upgrades to include a fly-by-wire, advanced avionics, uh, so kind of bringing the Strike Eagle out of the 80s <laughs> or 70s avionics-wise <laughs> into the 21st centuries to employ full-color kind of displays and, and that kind of... So that is a potential that Boeing is pitching right now. Uh, it's definitely offers some awesome capabilities and... Excited for the future for what that can bring because it's just more technology and an improved, like we said, radar, flight controls, and all that kind of stuff. So, will those be all new platforms or are they going to be retrofits? So, really, it's kind of like you talked about for the export variants. So, Saudi Arabia purchased uh, an FMS version, and Qatar is, is uh, has recently had an acquisition as well. So, the EX is essentially leveraging that using those platforms. So it's the same uh, Strike Eagle platform. There has been a little bit of, I guess, a little bit of redesign probably in the wings, and um, but otherwise it's pretty much the same as the current Strike Eagle uh, with some, like I said, the flight controls, right. processing, and, and avionics upgrades. But they're building these from scratch. They're not going to take old E's and retrofit them, I guess is what I'm asking. That's correct. They're built from scratch. Uh, currently, there's an assembly line in Boeing, okay. and they're building them. So it'll have that brand new airplane smell, uh, fresh coat of paint and everything. All right. So we talked about the looks of the F-15 in general. Uh, the one thing I wonder is when you look at the FA-18A through D Hornet, well, the EF Super Hornet looks very similar, but if you put them side by side, it's clear that it's a new aircraft. The F-15E, is it basically like if you had one next to a D, is it the same size? Is it different? Is it a new airframe and it just looks the same? I honestly don't know. Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, so side by side, they are the same size. In fact, it's the same base airframe. Uh, in fact, the first... Yeah, the first E model was a D model that was taken uh, from the fleet and then uh, retrofitted, modified into an E model. Hmm. And then this, the second one was taken off the assembly line as a D model, I think, and converted into an E model instead. So um, same wingspan, same overall length, tails, uh, and then base structure. There was some modifications as we got into production to to beef up uh, some of the laundrons uh, just for the differences of where fuel tanks are, a rear cockpit, 
uh, and such like that. And then there's some, there's obviously side by side, you see that they are definitely different airplanes just with the conformal fuel tanks, but those are removable. And when you have them side by side with, with nothing on a strike Eagle, nothing on an Eagle, really the only difference is the paint scheme and that there's two seats in one of them. So it could almost be a, a D model looking. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're, they're exactly the same base size. Hmm. Yeah. And in fact, those two that he mentioned, so one eight tail okay. one eight four and tail one eight five are both here at Eglin as part of the 40th and currently flying doing the test mission day in and day out. Nice. So they started as D models and still working hard as ease. Okay. So to your point, you could not have taken an FA-18D and turned it into an F, I'll call it, because the E was a single seat. Again, it was just a whole different airframe. So for you guys, uh, very similar airframes. And then again, some modifications for the air-to-surface roll, as well as the conformal fi- fuel tanks. And let's talk about those now, because I don't know where else to address it and we'll just check it off the list here i've seen conformal fuel tanks on an f-16 up on the like shoulders it looks uh, to me kind of cool i understand they're coming for the super hornet block three i don't know that much about them how much extra fuel does it give you and what does it do for your performance yeah so in terms of extra fuel the baseline eagle is about 13 5 13 000 pounds of fuel and then when you add the cfts it goes to 23 5 so it gives you an extra ten thousand pounds of fuel which depending on what mission you're doing, can be about an hour of flight time, wow. as well as a place to hang additional armament. Each CFT has six brews, as they're called, so bomb racks. Uh, so an additional 12 bombs, 500-pound bombs that you could carry. I guess we can talk armament-specific stuff later, but yeah, it can hold six dumb bombs per CFT or three smart weapons. A bunch of different configurations possible there. So it greatly increases... I guess, on station time, fuel, and weapon payload. Obviously, everything comes at a cost. Nothing's free, so that costs in drag. So increased drag. The motor performance is able to compensate it for it, but you really notice that if you're putting yourself into a BFM kind of a turning environment. That's where a clean eagle versus a strike eagle is going to be significantly different. Of course. Now, you said they're removable, but not in flight. Right. That is correct. They are not jettisonable, but they can. I wish they were sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So just thinking about, I don't know how much fuel your external fuel tanks carry. Uh, In the F-18, it was about 3,300. So if you have, let's say, a Strike Eagle with conformal fuel tanks versus a Strike Eagle with two or three tanks, how does the performance vary? I mean, because with the drop tanks, you can, as the name implies, drop them. Although I don't know about you guys, I never have. and, And we had a question about that on the show recently. But the other, of course, drawback is that not only do you not get the weapon stations on the CFTs, but you're actually taking up some stations. So, but just for the sake of performance, how would you compare a three wet, let's say strike Eagle versus the CFT three uh, strike Eagle? So the comparison there is uh, with three wet or three bag config, our centerline bag just happens to be a, in either the light gray or the uh, dark gray, the, the strike Eagle. It's just a very draggy configuration based off of some of the other things that we have on the airplane. Now, if we did the comparison between two bags or the CFTs, you actually have less drag with those bags because they are aerodynamic. And then as you implied, you can drop them. They do have overall less gas, but you actually make up that. Interestingly enough, we actually go cross country in, in these type of configs sometimes with a C model in two bags and a, an E model in CFTs. And oftentimes a C model end up there with more gas, but 
when you drop those and you go to that configuration, just as Smack said, you lose the mission capability of all those weapon stations. And that's really why we have those, because we lost probably 70, I guess it's about 70% of our weapon stations when we lose and drop those CFTs. So wow. we can do it, and it makes sense to you maybe in some cases, but more often than not, that's not why this jet was built, and that's not our primary role. Just out of curiosity, like in the Navy, to just take pylons off the wings, the maintenance folks weren't usually too thrilled with that because you could get things out of torque and have other issues. Does maintenance have qualms about putting on and taking off CFTs, or is it pretty straightforward? Yeah, in terms of it's it's not a standard thing, so no F-15E will normally fly without CFTs. The only time we fly in that configuration is a an FCF or a functional check flight uh, when we're trying to take it to depot to get it fixed mm. uh, or at, right after it's come back from kind of an overhaul. Gotcha. Otherwise, the CFTs are a permanent fixture of every Strike Eagle flight. And then uh, the, the t- wing tanks sometimes will fly with two wing tanks if we're doing a more air-to-ground focus kind of in, in the ops. Uh, and if we're more air-to-air configured, uh, we don't have those wing tanks. Gotcha. Okay, that's very interesting. What Smack was alluding to there, though, is just because we have CFTs doesn't mean that we also can't additionally carry the external fuel tanks in the drop tanks. So you could literally go out there, three external fuel tanks with the CFTs, and now you have on the order of 35,000 pounds of gas, which <laughs> drastically increases. I mean, that's the weight of um, of an F-16, uh, maybe a lot more. So yeah, I think it's more, maybe a loaded, yeah, one. maybe a loaded <laughs> F-16 only in fuel though. Yeah. yeah. It does have that capability and certainly it's a cost right. of drag, but if you had a mission where you really needed to have some uh, long on station time or when we do crosses on the pond and things like that, we'll load up with two and sometimes three bags to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, probably you burn a third of it, just getting yourself off a 12,000 foot runway and up to cruise altitude. Cause you're going to probably be in burner for a while, but no, that's interesting to hear. I appreciate that. All right. Let's move on to armament. I assume it's the same gun. I guess I would question, is it the same number of rounds as a regular It's actually half as many. So the Wizard seat takes up uh, about the same as 500 rounds. And that was based on a weight and space trade-off. So we have can carry 510 rounds of 20 millimeter, same M61, uh, six barrel, 20 millimeter with, interestingly enough, it actually has a two degree upcant, still an air-to-air mech gun that we have come up with some tactics to be able to employ it air to ground, even though it was designed for air to air. Well, you guys are the test guys, so you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it's probably easier to leave it the same cant up than it is to change it and have all the airframe changes as well as all the flight testing you'd have to do. Yeah, you bet. And going back to earlier, when they're looking at alternatives, it's always, well, I shouldn't say always, uh, that's a definitive statement there, but (laughs) <laughs> it is usually better just to adapt something that already works well and not change something, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So instead we, you know, like Smack said, we just trained around it and right. there's some downsides to it. You have to aim quite a bit shorter than you would have and run a little bit steeper pass, but you know, nobody knows anything different because they've been <laughs> flying that, that one forever. <laughs> yep. Uh, let's see, moving along through weapons. So for air to air, again, I assume it's same as, the regular Eagle, light gray Eagle, I still don't know what to call it, but Sparrow, Sidewinder, although the Sparrow's about gone, and an AMRAM, which is pretty much all we have in the U.S. inventory anyway. Anything I'm missing there? No, that's right. Okay. And then for air to surface, maybe it's easier to say what it doesn't carry. I mean, it looks like you've got all the standard GP bombs and what you can do with a general purpose bomb, like laser guided or 
GPS guided, as well as bunker busters, uh, and then some forward firing stuff. So I don't know if you want to either rattle through everything you got, oh, and cluster munitions, uh, or just tell us what you don't have, whatever's easier. <laughs> That's a good question. We're, we're looking at each other, racking our brains, figuring out what we don't carry. <laughs> Harms we don't carry. Yeah. But otherwise, anything that we do drop air to surface, so we can carry all the dumb bombs, so Mark 82s, Mark 84s, any 500, 2,000-pound uh, variant of those. All the cluster mu- munitions, so most of those are right. phased out, but all the CBU, 103, 45, 7s, mm-hmm. then all the LGBs, so GBU 10, 12, 24, 28. I guess those are Paveway 2, Paveway 3 series. And then into the GPS right. uh, guided bombs, so GBU 31s. 2,000-pound GPS munition, JDAM, uh, GB-38s, SDB-1 and 2, so uh, GB-39s and 53s. Okay. We're actually testing the, the SDB-2 right now. And then GB-54 is a laser-guided JDAM there. Laser JDAM? Yep. Mm-hmm. Is there a uh, nuclear component of what you guys do? Yeah, so B-61 is one of the options for the for the nuclear mission. We can carry that uh, as as a possible armament. Well, let's hope we never have to do that. And then it looks like some forward-firing stuff, Maverick, Harpoon, Slam-ER, JSAO, JASM, just not the harm. Yeah, that's right. So a lot of these have been carried, and some other countries actually carry them more often than we do. All of those are cleared configurations, and there's parts of our software that can handle those. Uh, The U.S. doesn't carry all of those, but as you just named off, it's literally it's pretty much everything. And that's the great thing about the airframe is... It's a beast and it, you put something on there and we do this every day as testers to figure out, you know, is that going to change how it flies or if we can deliver it, if is it going to not have a good enough performance to get off the ground because it's too heavy and it pretty much just can do all of those things. And over time, we've done all those either for other countries or for the U.S. And But at any given time, you know, you have to choose your loadout and you have to choose what you're going to spend money on as a military. And so other countries have chosen some of the things on that menu and we've chosen some other thing, you know, different stuff on that menu. And then we have to decide when we actually go out to a conflict or a possible conflict, what we're going to actually carry. Cause you can't carry certainly all of that at the same time. And there's certain combinations that make sense. And there's certain ones that just don't. So, well, and to your earlier point, it makes it very difficult for the crews to stay proficient in all of these, because even a JDAM can be somewhat labor-intensive to prepare for a mission, particularly if you're carrying more than one. Okay, uh, what about rockets? Do you guys do anything with forward-firing rockets? Rockets um, have been part of the um, things that have been tested and actually employed. Um, currently, we don't have a, uh, a rocket pod on the on the U.S. variant of the Strike Eagle, um, and I'm not exactly sure if any foreigners do or not, but uh, it is something that is possible Um and maybe possible in the future should we choose to pursue it, but currently we don't. No rockets. Okay. You know, I, I didn't know where else to ask this, so I, I, let's just get to it now. Crew coordination. I don't know if you guys have ever gone by Top Gun or listened into any lectures, but one of the big classes they give to the two-seat crews started, of course, back with the F-4 and then the F-14, but now even with the Ds and the Fs is the crew coordination briefing. It isn't, of course, standards. It's, as with most things, recommendations. And I'm assuming the Air Force has something similar. But how do you guys divide the roles? And does it work out pretty well? Or is it is there some, I don't know what else to call it, you know, some issues with who should be doing what? Or, you know, 
What can you tell me about crew coordination? Yeah, crew coordination. So that's a great focus, really, for what the platform can offer. So we have a limited, same number of systems, really, or one of every system that we have on the airplane, but now there's two people. So one of the big things is dividing that attention, that crew focus, for who's operating it. So part of that goes into our TCC, our tactical crew comm or crew coordination. So we'll either be directive or descriptive with whatever sensor it is by saying my radar or your radar, trying to minimize the amount of conversation that you have. We we call it trucker comm. So try and rely on the 3-1 or the tactical communication so that there's no ambiguity in terms of what you're saying, what you need to have happen, really trying to teach the new guys to be directive than descriptive as required to kind of cut down any amount of confusion or the time that it would take. A lot of times people ask... Because it's in all phases of flights. Yeah, it's throughout all phases of flight. So when you're flying, it's not just kind of a having a good time joking around. It's kind of like you're at the office trying to get work done. Mm-hmm. And at least I find it's a lot more efficient when you try and cut out any of that, save that stuff for the bar later and kind of focus on the job that you're trying to accomplish. Okay. So you'll have standard, you know, procedures for, Hey, on the ground, you do these checks. I'll do those checks. Uh, you talk, I'll listen. And then in air to air, you have certain roles divided. And of course, to your point, when I was single seat flying an F-18, dropping a laser guided weapon, I had to compromise how well I was flying my aircraft in order to keep the diamond on the target to illuminate. Because if the laser points somewhere else, guess what? That's where the bomb's going to go. So for you guys with your air-to-surface role, now you have a second set of eyes and ears and brain and everything else to, hey, you fly the airplane, I'll laze the target or do what needs to be done. And you can, or even in the slam ER is a big one, uh, you can divide the roles. And as long as you have a tactic and a procedure and parameters for doing it, sometimes one plus one equals more than two. Absolutely. So there's kind of a standard crew coordination brief. Uh, So at the end of every flight brief, you can kind of pair up and kind of mind meld for if you're going to follow the standards or if you want to do something non-standard, if you have a good reason for doing that, hey, here's how we're trying to attack this target today. Here's what you can expect to hear from me. A lot of times a question that I get is, do you fly with the same pilot or WIZO combination every time? And the answer is no, and that can include in combat or in training, just based on scheduling and um, timing and all that, you fly with a variety of different people. So having kind of that set standard and then a reason to deviate from it really allows that crew coordination to kind of be seamless. You don't have to have every person's memorized. You kind of have a starting base to be able to, uh, to accomplish what you're trying to together. Right. And that is the point, I guess, of the standards or recommendations is, hey, let's all agree we're going to do it this way. Unless, to your point, Smack, there's something different about today. And so we'll do it different for this reason, but it's proactive. It's not just haphazard. Absolutely. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, call sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. 
In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading the supersonic bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. All right, let's move on to performance. Now, we heard the numbers, you know, roughly 60,000 feet, Mach 2 plus, 9Gs, et cetera, et cetera. I guess what I want to know is what have you guys ever seen? What's the highest? What's the fastest? How many Gs? Uh, flying low and fast, I guess, is uh, your forte as well. What have you guys seen? In a Strike Eagle, that is. <laughs> With the CFTs on, we have a Mach limit there just based off some of the aerodynamics. So, I've seen right up to that limit, which is 700 knots and 1.6 Mach. Wow. You know, sometimes in tests, we take things right up to those limits. And so we're cheating a little bit, but uh, it's not uncommon to see that on a functional check flight or something that we normally do after the jet's been down for a while. Mm-hmm. So 700 knots is, it definitely can get there and uh, 1.6, it can do that as well. Now that's with nothing really on it and you have to do a, right. a little bit of trying to get there and <laughs> talk to it and whisper to it a little bit just to get there. So yeah, I've definitely seen that. And then nine G's is, is certainly in its capability almost every day of the week, depending on, and definitely in the air to air loadout. Wow. Usually we're limited more by the weapons and their capability than our aircraft G limit. However, we just can't sustain it for very long. And that's due to, you know, aerodynamics and drag and things like that. But yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you need to, something bad has happened anyway. Uh, and then in terms of limits, service ceiling is 50,000 feet. So I've been up to 50,000 feet in the Strike Eagle. I've seen that. And then something else unique just is a thousand knots across the ground. So having a little bit of wind helping you across the back, <laughs> but still staying within the basic airframe limits. But a, yeah. a thousand knots is uh, four digits across the ground is pretty impressive. Absolutely is. Yeah, for sure. Hey, I realized I skipped something on armament, uh, if we can go back. Did I read correctly about 11 points to load in total? And I don't know if that's with the CFTs. Uh, are you talking air to ground? Well, just, uh, I guess, hard points or whatever. But yeah, well, how would you describe like how many places or how many stations you could load different weapons? Yeah, so for air to ground weapons loading, there's 15 stations. So each CFT has six. So with uh, the CFTs, that's 12. And then you can have... wow where the tanks would go. So that's station two and eight, you could carry an additional 2000 pound bomb on each of those. And then the center line at station five for a total of 15 hard points. It's really limited based on its max gross takeoff weight of 82,000 pounds. And did I read correctly? That's about a 24,000 pound load for ordnance? Uh, yeah. Wow. So depending on the configuration, we have the option to lock out the CFTs so they aren't full so we could carry more air-to-ground weapons, take off, and then hit a tanker once we're airborne to top off that fuel. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, thanks. I had that here and then just glossed over it, so uh, we'll come back. Another thing, though, is a, a big part of what you do are the different sensors or pods, and we don't have to get too technical here. But like on the F-18, again, I refer to that because it's my experience, but we had first the FLIR and then the AT FLIR. I guess it was the Nighthawk was the first one. But anyway, did I read correctly? Is there about two or three different pods you guys can carry? Sniper, Lightning? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so it when it was initially fielded, it had the uh, Lantern Pod system. So it's a set of two pods, uh, a NAV pod, uh, which is a terrain following radar uh, with some forward looking infrared capabilities as well as a targeting pod. So those are two separate pods. 
They carry um, the pod, the targeting pod itself. So an IR pod has been upgraded to the, now Sniper and Lightning are the two ma- two major pods, and we can carry either one of those. When you carry one of those, does it cost you a weapon station? Uh, no. So there's two stations, Five Alpha and Bravo. So they're basically just under the inlets. Only for carrying pods, you cannot carry any weapons there, and they're both of those pods are essentially just like the CFTs. I would treat them as permanent fixtures of a Strike Eagle. You would <laughs> always fly with both of those on. That's cool. Well, we did not have that feature in the F-18. We lost the left cheek station, so it cost us a weapon. But again, when you're deployed, it was pretty standard to have it on there. Yeah. Okay. Obviously, flying the thing, it's modern aircraft. I have to assume pretty good ergonomics, hands-on throttle and stick. Uh, everything's where you need it. Smack in the back, you've got some controllers, right? It's not just a second set of stick and throttle back there? Yeah, in the back. So there's a full set of controls uh, with uh, flight controls and both throttles, as well as two hand controllers on the side. I have four displays in the back. And so I have, oh, I can have my hands on my two hand controllers and control the radar, the targeting pod, any of the sensors that I have to run in the back without interfering with the flight control. So I can have my hands on that or I can fly from the back seat if required. Okay. I did not know that. In the F-18D and F, you got one or the other. I don't know if you could put both. And in fact, I'm pretty sure you couldn't because the left hand controller actually replaced where the throttle sat. So that's interesting. Okay. So do you get a little stick time just in transient parts of flight? Yeah, that's that's definitely an option. When we are more in the tactical portion, uh, we we divide our duties just like we talked about crew coordination wise, but uh, transient flying, uh, you have the opportunity to be able to fly. Right. Yeah. I'll I'll add in and go back to your... uh how many G's can it pull discussion? So I remember Stretch and Spider-Man talked about, I think a story was 12 or so G's that they heard somebody pull. And I thought I heard 14 at one point. Maybe 14. Um, we do have a couple, and I can't remember all the G counts, but having that um, extra set of controls in the back is, there's often times where crew coordination, there's a, the backseat or the WIZO is a safety observer in a lot of cases too, or just being that tactical air crew, there's times where, Either one of us or uh, hopefully not both get disoriented. And I I know I'm sure you have and I know I have on a tanker in the weather. And Mm -hmm. there's times where there's been pilots that their gyros have been just out to lunch in their uh, in their ears and just not really knowing where or maybe fixated on the target. I don't know how many, but two to five, maybe 10, you know, over a 30 years where the Wizzo's actually taking the controls after saying recover nothing happening out of the airplane, nothing happened out of the front seat and actually taking the stick. And, you know, theoretically, uh, I know there's a couple that have just been crews saved because the backseater had that, both the sticks, you know, the stick and throttles there to do it. And then the wherewithal to actually, you know, save the airplane. So Mm -hmm. something that all Air Force airplanes that are two-place cockpits over time. So the F-4 was this way, the F-111 and the, uh, the Strike Eagle has always had an extra set of controls in the backseat, regardless if it was missionized or not. Well, that's, I tell you, one of the benefits of having a podcast is you learn something every episode. And of course, I learned something always anyway, but that was, I had no idea. That's amazing. Awesome. Thanks, guys. All right. So just about done. A couple more things. What was one thing you guys really love about the Strike Eagle? I'll go first. So the one thing I love is I I tell my wife I get bored easily (laughs) and she knows that. And it's going out and being able to do something different every day with the vast majority of mission sets and being able to go out and try to, you know, master one of them each day and and get a little bit better. That's one thing that has just been really rewarding about flying that airplane. 
certainly managing a crew because it is a crew airplane is a difficult thing to master and that but that's one of the other rewarding things it's a challenge but it's rewarding as well to be able to do well and mm -hmm. you know finishing a sortie where you were both on your a game like you said earlier one plus one can equal you know more than two and and that is really rewarding and that's what i really enjoyed about uh, this airplane is going beyond what you can do in that single seat yeah. fighter and, and do that no doubt yeah yeah and you've had a chance to do both so you can speak with authority yeah you bet yeah it's definitely a jack of all trades and being the one who is on call to go do the, the job that you signed up for. And if that job is constantly changing, uh, you know you're still going to be the one that's called when that fight changes to, to something else. It pivots to something else in the future. The Strike Eagle is going to be around and it's going to be mm -hmm. on the front lines, kind of giving them hell, if you will. Absolutely. Okay. So that being said, realizing that not every aircraft is going to do everything well, and some of these may be deliberate alternatives or consequences, but is there ever anything that you wish for whatever reason they would just put enough money at to fix? Is there any weakness or thorn in your side of the Strike Eagle that just bothers you that you're willing to admit? So one of the thorns in my side forever has been, we actually have, you know, in the 21st century, we still have two displays in the front and two displays in the back that are still green monochrome displays. And, um, <laughs> That is just one of those things that, uh, you know, it's such a simple thing to change, but, you know, the acquisition and we get better radars maybe instead or, or put, spend the money elsewhere. But that part is just mm -hmm. frustrating seeing what's uh, capable out there. And then we do have other screens that are color displays as well. But, but that's one thing I would change if I could just choose to change that tomorrow. <laughs> All right. How about you, Smack? Yeah, just seeing some of the technology on a similar vein. So some of the way that we can carry out maps or information to the airplane, it's basically uh, this five-pound lunchbox that's a hard drive that is smaller. That, you know, it, it's like 500K or something like that. I feel like they could just put in a USB port <laughs> and we could plug a thumb drive in and we could have maps we, uh, for the whole world pretty easily and just be able to upgrade the storage and not be stuck in 1976 with our five pound metal lunchbox that we have to carry all our information on. <laughs> Maybe if you had a USB in your pocket, you'd go home with it. Uh, I'm guessing nobody inadvertently goes home with a lunch. Fair enough. Maybe that, maybe that's intentional. The, uh, <laughs> Apple two E I'm thinking type display. That's right. Yep. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you just never know the answers on some of these aircraft. And it's amazing because by so many other standards, this thing is cutting edge and, and so effective and, lethal, but still you got the, again, Apple IIe, I'm thinking, type display from the early 80s. Uh, that's hilarious. All right. Where would the average citizen have seen the Strike Eagle? I mean, obviously the Thunderbirds aren't flying it. Uh, we talked last time about the F-15 itself is not getting a whole lot of notoriety in Hollywood. You guys are quietly and unceremoniously doing your jobs over there in Inherent Resolve and elsewhere, but does this thing have much notoriety? I think the easy answer to that one is because it's doing its uh, job every day and it's usually is deployed and it has been for, gosh, a good portion of its existence through Gulf War One all the way up till now. But that's kind of the bragging that the, the community usually does is say, hey, we've been fighting the war for a long time. But yeah, I can't think of anything, you know, we haven't really hit Hollywood, haven't uh, seen too much on the news or anything. We do some flyovers, but that's about it. It's loud and proud. But mm -hmm. Yeah, flyovers. I think Calvin and Hobbes, maybe the comics, has some Strike Eagle representation of him fighting dinosaurs. I think I read some of those when I was a kid. Maybe that's uh, how I ended up here. Oh, that's great. 
Well, you know, I, I personally think there's nothing wrong with getting the job done and quietly going home. Uh, and it sounds like the Strike Eagle has done that. The research my team has provided me looks like Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Southern Watch, Northern Watch, Desert Fox, Iraqi Freedom, Deny Flight, Deliberate Force, Allied Force, Enduring Freedom, Odyssey Dawn, Inherent Resolve. We already talked about that. And presently, Decisive Storm in Yemen and elsewhere. I mean, this thing's out there getting it done day in and day out, and it doesn't need a lot of attention, I would argue. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it's definitely it's definitely well known in our Air Force community, and uh, and and I would say the DoD or the at large uh, as far as how it's capable. And um, but yeah, among the public, I don't know if it's gotten the notoriety that that some other airframes have. Well, we'll do our part here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast to give it its due. Yeah, you're doing great. We appreciate it. Thank you. Smack, we'll start with you. Any particular f- memorable flights or uh, real-world operations you're willing to share? Any, any uh, When you think back to the Strike Eagle, and you're still flying it, of course, but what, what one flight kind of sticks out in your mind that you're willing to share? Yeah, well, I'll give a personal story, and then uh, there's another story I have to tell after this if you don't ask it. But my personal story goes back to Operation Enduring Freedom, so that was fighting Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. So a lot of uh, close air support. A lot of supporting, you know, special operations forces on the ground, you know, hunting down the enemy and then defending our forces on the ground. So the story basically goes uh, one night, backseater Mock and I were out with a two ship, sent off our wingmen to the tanker because oftentimes we'll just continue. We call it yo-yoing back and forth. So we always have coverage over the the good guys and Mm -hmm. give them top cover. And our wingman was at the tanker. We're just escorting a convoy. And it's at night, uh, so we have night vision goggles on. Everything kind of was, you know, pretty calm. And I happened to be looking out the left side of the cockpit. Mach was looking out the right side. And I happened to just see a bunch of RPGs starting to be fired and just got padlocked. So I, I was just staring at that location where they started from. So this all goes to our, our how we crew coordinate and how we were dividing our duties. So I was really flying the airplane, but looking outside. Mach was looking outside, but also running the targeting pod. But I was staring at this location that I knew something had come from. So we have the ability. I said, my pod took the targeting pod. So I was now controlling it, turned on a IR marker on that. So I can see where that is in my night vision goggles, salute it right over to that position. And then that was my really job to be done. I said, that's where they were now still flying the airplane, but looking outside mock looks through the video screen on there and she says, captured. And we see, no kidding, enemy doing their thing and prepping more attacks against the good guys. And so right there, we were able to find the enemy and ID them doing a you know a hostile act. So we were actually able to do that within about 20 seconds. From there, notify the ground troops that were getting fired upon. It was something like 180 or 270 degrees later. So you know, three quarters around a turn. We had done all the communication to then go per- neutralize the enemy there and, and deliver a GBU-12 attack on those guys. And and so that is a memorable, that's one of those memories I'll take till, you know, I'm old telling my grandkids because, first of all, we were able to do good work uh, and defend, you know, the good guys. But really a great story for me and flying other airplanes where if I put myself back in, a, you know, an F-35 trying to do the same thing or an F-16 or anything single seat, really, we do have limitations as humans, regardless of, of how good our systems can be. And 
like you said earlier, I would have had to give up looking at the person to fly my airplane, you know, looking through the pod or controlling the pod, flying the airplane. But through that, that crew coordination, Mach was able to take all the targeting after that initial acquisition. We were able to trade back and forth. And I think we only said something like 20 words to each other in about a minute and a half or whenever that whole <laughs> attack happened. That one's one of those that that I'll take forever. And, you know, we still see each other every couple of years. And yeah you know, kind of give a high five and say, that was a great story. It's a great story because it's got all the elements of, you know, crew coordination, efficiency systems. I mean, so I assume it was, it was at night. So you've got your night vision goggles, you've got the folks on the ground you're coordinating with. So there's all that. And, uh, and in the end it was effective and efficient and lethal and the results we want. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's, right. that's pretty cool. Yeah. How about you, Smack? Is there one uh, you can think of? Yeah. Not to sound like a broken record, but from the Strike Eagle perspective, every good story is going to have crew coordination. So I've got a similar combat experience this time, OIR, like we talked about earlier. So Operation Inherent Resolve over the Iraq, uh, Syria area at night once again. So we're supporting uh, some troops on the ground, a tick uh, or troops in contact. And we're at the point where we, we have to go to the tanker. So we go to the tanker. We're on the boom while this tick is still ongoing. We uh, hook up, we're getting gas, we're topping off, dingo's in the front seat, talking to the boomer, making sure that we're safe and staying in position. It's at night. And then we've got three radios as well. So he's got the our sat radio turned down and I'm talking to a JTAC, writing down coordinates, copying down a nine line, uh, which is kind of the communication from a JTAC to the air crew to make sure that we are appropriately making sure we get all the coordinates, elevation, know where the friendlies are, which is who's bad, who's good, kind of checking all the containers uh, down the list there. Yep. So I copy down the nine line. And then as soon as we have the gas that we need, uh, we disconnect and I hit check left heading one, two, zero, air to ground master mode, clear to release. And with good crew coordination and, and good trust, we don't have to explain, hey, hey, you weren't listening to the radio, but guess what's going on down there? He's on the same page right away. And we're able to get weapons off the airplane on time to support the troops on the ground and keep the friendlies safe and able to smoothly execute that. There you go. Is something I'm extremely proud of. And and once again, I, I want to share with my kids and grandkids. Awesome. Well, and that's what it really comes down to, right? Because let's face it, we're kind of spoiled. We're in the sanctuary of the sky and that we probably have fairly decent by relative standards, accommodations when we land. And here's these guys on the ground getting dirty, getting shot at, you know, eating MREs. And uh, so, yeah, they are our customer, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah, we are definitely the supporting asset there and they're they're the supported ones. And we used to have a uh, a sign going out the door from our ops building deployed that says, uh, the only thing that matters is the 18-year-old on the ground with a rifle, all else is just support. And so that would remind us every day. And there you go. You know, absolutely that we were just there to support them. I totally agree. All right, guys. Well, we can just about wrap it up. Anything on the Strike Eagle? Obviously, we didn't go into everything. I mean, redundant systems and avionics and everything else we could spend all day. But in general terms, for those who want to know about the F-15E Strike Eagle, anything we didn't cover that uh, maybe we should just very briefly? So, Jello, have you heard about the one air-to-air kill we have? I don't think I have. Well, the listeners need to hear this one. So okay. you heard from the light gray that we're basically undefeated. And I can't remember the total. I should know that. But uh, lots mm-hmm. of air-to-air kills to zero losses in air-to-air. Well, one of those kills is actually uh, Strike Eagle. It was back 
I think Valentine's Day of of 91, so back in the Gulf War, you know, the Strike Eagle was still a baby. It was two, three years being IOC. You know, it was kind of new, the new kid on the block and mostly air to ground, you know, shooting up tanks and uh, doing scud hunts and things like that. We mentioned earlier, but yeah, there were some times that uh, they would go out and, you know, certainly they would always have a, a dual role mix. And in this particular night, so TV Bennett and uh, Chewy Baki were flying front and backseater respectively. <laughs> Love it. So they were out there with some AIM-9 mics and some GBU-10, so 2,000-pound laser-guided bombs. And and they get a call from the C2s, from the AWACS, saying that there's some Heinz, so MI-24s, some Russian-built uh, helicopters about the size of a Blackhawk. And they were pursuing some of our special forces that we had in the area. So command and control tells them to go investigate and then to neutralize them. And uh, so as they're a part of their attack, there was some weather, so they got down low and they were having some troubles because the helicopters were slowing down, dropping troops off, ascending again. And it's really hard based off of nerdy physics, but radars don't do real well when things are stopping and, and there's really no closure or anything. And so they were having some trouble locking up the helicopters, but they did get a really good cue on one of them. So they cued in their targeting pod. So Chewie's in the back seat uh, and cues it up and sees them and it was able to ID them and and then they're having a hard time getting the radar to keep locked to shoot a radar missile or the AIM-9 to even get a lock yet. And so they make the conscious decision of, well, these guys may be on the ground anyways, or they're going really slow. Let's actually drop an LGB on them. And so they transition to <laughs> air-to-ground master mode, and they drop a GBU-10. They're going fast pretty low, uh, but underneath the clouds, not on the deck, but high enough up, Mm -hmm. drop a GBU 10. And then they check direction, I think left here and go in their designator leg to laze it in. It goes all the way down to zero and they say, Oh no, we missed. And meanwhile, getting crew coordination TB in the front seats, trying to get a, that radar lock and that nine mic. And he has a nine mic locked up on this guy and he's ready to shoot if they miss. So it counts down to zero. They think they miss. And then all of a sudden they see on their video screen, the GBU-10 enter the screen, go right through the one of the hinds, and it actually blows up beneath it based off the fusing delay. And so it was off the ground, uh, traveling pretty slow. Beneath it, it explodes and just obliterates the helicopter. So that was an air-to-air kill. Uh, the other helicopters turn around, you know, tail between their legs and start running away. And as they're going to pursue them, to shoot them down with some air-to-air missiles, some other airframes got called in and were dropping bombs uh, on some of those other enemy locations. And so TB and Chewie said, well, that was enough fun. We don't want to get hit with one of those bombs. And so they end up bugging out. But that is the one and only air-to-air kill. And it was with an Fittingly enough for the strike eagles with an air-to-ground weapon. So that one goes down in history. And uh, Fitting is right, yes. That one has to be told because it's almost folklore, but it's 100% true. <laughs> so, All right. So on the side of that airplane, you can paint both a bomb and a silhouette of a hind. That's right. There is still to this day, <laughs> that, that airplane's still flying, and there's a giant green star on that. It's still in the inventory as the one air-to-air kill for the strike eagle. All right. Well, again, adaptability, flexibility, all the keys to air power, get the job done. And in the end, it had the desired result, not only of a kill, but it turned everybody else around. That's right. And uh, lightened up the attack on our guys. So that's a win. 
Awesome. Well, thanks for that, Tack. That's a great way to wrap it up. Again, as I always say, we could go on and on, but this has been a lot of fun. Smack, we'll start with you. We're going to wrap it up. What does the future hold for starters? Are you going to keep playing the game here? You're a 03, right? Yeah, so there's a lot of exciting uh, stuff here in terms of the Strike Eagle's been around for a long time, and it keeps getting upgrades because we're, I guess, America's expecting it to keep doing the job for a long time. So that's really exciting for me to be involved where I am right now, and I'm just excited to keep going, learning new stuff, and getting new stuff out to the warfighter to make that job even easier. There you go. You're going to make the Air Force a career, you think? That's the plan for right now. Like I said, I'm I'm really happy with what I'm doing. So I just want to keep at it. There you go. All right. And then tell us, uh, before we let you go here, how did someone come up with a call sign smack for Mark Smith? Yeah, pretty generic name there, I guess. Fighter pilots have a game called Manchester. So the smack comes mostly from giving out some smacks across the face. So if somebody, for the listeners who aren't familiar, <laughs> it's a way to kind of keep each other in check. It's a game we play with each other where if you say something ridiculous... Your friend, your buddy, can call you out by saying Manchester, and if you don't do whatever crazy thing you said you were going to, the payment or the payback is a, is a smack across the face. So I see. dish out a few of those, and then additionally, it's a 3-1 or a tactical term, uh, so there's kind of some relevance for dropping bombs on a target ASAP, so uh, a little bit of a duality there. True. I, I'm not familiar with that game. I feel like I'm missing out. I take it it probably wasn't played in squadron spaces, but maybe after on Liberty? It's maybe a roll call, more of a roll call type game. Ah, uh, gotcha. All right, Smack. Well, thanks very much. All right, uh, Tech. So yeah, I was going to move on with you, Tech, and just ask you what the future holds. You're Lieutenant Colonel, so I'm guessing you're getting relatively close to 20, but uh, what's the plan? Yeah, I am getting older. So I've got almost 17 years in, prepping to take command of a squadron here soon. Oh, cool. And so... That'll take a lot of my time over here the next couple of years. And so excited and uh, and ready to lead a flight test squadron there. So that's exciting. So certainly it's already a career. You know, I'm a, I'm a couple of years away from an optional retirement there uh, at 20. Right. And then uh, I don't know what the future holds. So love what I do, just like Smack said. And our job is great because we get to go review, look at, and refine things for maybe have some good ideas to develop some things for the warfighters for the future. And and we take that job seriously and, and it's a lot of fun too. And, and we get to do something different all the time. And that feeds my uh, get bored easily type personality. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a lot of fun and, you know, having guys like smack and stereotypical guys that are just, you're ready to go out and do good work and provide for the warfighter. Yeah. I'm in for the long haul and, and beyond that uh, we'll see what happens. Well, enjoy it while you can, because let me tell you personally, there's nothing like it once you're out, but thankfully I have this show to help me talk to guys like you and relive my glory days. So <laughs> you can, and having a squadron will be awesome. Right. So good on you for that. Yeah, thank you. Cool. All right. Well, so TAC, and if I remember correctly, I saw it in all caps. So Richard Turner, who came up with TAC, and I'm guessing it means something maybe as an acronym? Yeah. So um, you're going to be disappointed. It's not real exciting. It's more of a, a dig and uh, just a... Aww kind of uh, remind me of a, a cruddy situation that we were in uh, when I was really young. So I was still a lieutenant. As I first got qualified in the airplane, got left at home station while the rest of the squadron was deployed. Well, it was great timing because we had our first uh, child. So my son was born and uh, he was born on October 16th. A couple days later, my DO calls and he says, hey, I need to take a jet to the squadron. And, and they were deployed at the time. So so I get in a jet, we take it, and one of our tankers falls out halfway, and I get uh, stuck in in Suda Bay in Crete. 
Uh, so island off of Greece there. Okay. And so we get stuck at uh, Suda Bay and we're ready to gas and go and then go take that jet downrange. I was supposed to be back in a day. Well, I get stuck in, in Suda Bay for about two, two and a half weeks. The jet breaks the next day. <laughs> and uh, long story short, it uh, keeps breaking. They fix it. Doesn't break. Then the tanker breaks. And so TAC stands for TDY at Crete. Uh, which is basically for missing the first two to three weeks of my son's <laughs> life. I got to see the birth, which was great, but then missed a lot of the rest of the fun stuff. So, yeah. so tack, uh, and then it it does flow smooth into the last name because we do tack turns, tactical turns as far as uh, you know how we turn in formation and things like that. And so tack turner is kind of how it fits together. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's not real fun. Yeah, Nothing okay. I did stupid. It's just to remind me there. Well, and I'm guessing I got stuck one time for a week in Key West, Florida. And, you know, when I got home, people were ribbing me about it. Oh, it must have been rough. And I don't know about for you, but for me, it was like, okay, it was fun for the first day or two. But after a while, particularly with a newborn, I have to think you were just like, okay, I can only spend so much time on the beach and so much time in the bar. Uh, get me out of here. But I'm guessing that didn't stop people from teasing you about no, it. No, I, I still get that all the time. And, you know, my wife kids me and my mom kids me about it. And uh, oh, yeah. But sometimes it's fun, um, but it is, you know, that's short-lived and you know, we had to babysit the airplane a lot. So there wasn't a whole lot of sitting on the beach. It was mostly just waiting for good news to come home, but it took a while. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the needs of the service. You know, we always say the word sacrifice. Sometimes we think it means the ultimate sacrifice, but there's a lot of other little sacrifices you make when you belong to Uncle Sam and you just demonstrated that. So yeah, that's right. awesome. Well, thanks for that. All right, guys. Well, we can wrap it up. Tack, I'll start with you. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Really enjoyed everything you had to say and your 17 years of experience there. Appreciate it. You added a lot to the show. Thank you. Yeah, Joe. Thanks for the opportunity. This is uh, it's great talking with you and thanks for what you do spreading the good word about uh, fighter air crew and airplanes at large. So I, I think your listeners are uh, grateful. Oh, well, I hope so. It's uh, it's a labor of love. And Smack, over to you, buddy. Thanks for your time today and good luck with the rest of your career. Absolutely, Joe. Thanks so much. Uh, really appreciate you inviting me on here. And then also for the work that you do. It's a, it's a quality product for the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Keep up the good work. Will do, guys. All right. Thanks very much. We'll see you. All right. Well, those guys are a couple American heroes. Big thanks again to Tack and Smack for taking the time to come on the show and enlighten us all on the venerable mud hen, as I guess it's called, although it didn't really come up in our discussion. Man, what an aircraft the Strike Eagle is. Now, listening to it again to prepare for these remarks, I, a couple things that just stuck with me were first... I thought it was really cool that Smack wanted to be a pilot, but ended up a Wizzo and enjoyed it and is making the most of it. And this comes up a lot. I get emails all the time from folks. Some of them we've shared here on the show about, Hey, I really want to do this, but I don't think I'll be happy unless I get that. My answer is always, you've got to accept that you have a journey in life, a path to walk that is unlike anyone else's and you don't control all of it. And so you've got to come to peace with that or else you're just not going to have a very meaningful and full life. So sounds like Smack did that and kudos to him. I think that's awesome. And a lot of people do. You will too if you're a young person aspiring to military aviation. The light gray versus dark gray. I guess I knew that, but never really thought about it. It does make sense. And then when I was talking about the tornado, I realized there are some versions or variants that are more for the air to air and then, then the air to ground. And so, of course, those are painted appropriately. Didn't mean to lump them all into one. And then I never knew that the Air Force multi-crew aircraft, like uh, TAC was talking about, always have that extra set of flight controls in the back. And 
guys like Smack are able to save the pilot in extremis. That is amazing. And makes me wonder if that's something the Navy one time considered or just never has considered it. But the fact that they've saved a few guys is important. But you also have to make sure you clear the guy in the back when there is that second stick because sometimes it can uh, hit their knees or hang up on their flight controls or, or, or I should say on their flight gear or something like that. But anyway, pretty interesting. Did not know that. And then with regards to the comparisons I drew between the Strike Eagle and the FA-18F Super Hornet, which is the most common comparison you wouldn't want to use E to E because the E... Super Hornet is single seat, as you know. Uh, remember earlier we talked about Edward Chang. He's that San Diego-based writer. Uh, he did write an interesting article about this back in the summer of 2018 when the movie Top Gun Maverick was announced. And so you can read that. It's pretty good. And we'll leave a link to it in the show notes. Now, as we talked about on the last two episodes, 104 to nothing over the life of the Eagle. Granted, many of those are from Israeli pilots, but that is amazing. It's an undefeated aircraft, including one with a laser-guided bomb against a helicopter. That is just crazy. Now, I don't mean to make humor or light of people dying, but this is war, and a kill with an air-to-ground weapon is kind of crazy, if you ask me, as is all of war. Anyway, as promised, this being F-15 month, we have five copies of the Digital Combat Simulator campaign, Georgian War. It's created by our team member, Baltic Dragon, and his friend, Chris Viper Long. The detailed campaign is set during the 2008 Russo-Georgian War and is based on extensive research from that following real-world events that happened between August 8th and 13th, 2008. So check the show notes and our various social media platforms. You'll see a link there for our profile there with uh, King Sumo, and you can sign up to have a chance to win one of those five campaigns. Good luck. All right. Well, before we wrap up today, I want to personally thank our new Patreon strike leads, and we have many, Will Rogers, Camille pierre Flower, John Freund, Cam Nichols, Richard Harris, Alexander Strickland, Marco Bezio, and Daniel Strait. Additionally, we have one new mission commander, John Wilhelm, and a new air boss from Sweden, Patrick Pedersen. As a reminder, the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So that'll do it for this week, everyone. Take care of yourselves out there. Be good to each other. Be patient. Be courteous. We'll hope to see you all back here in about 10 days for episode 77, which we are titling simply The Boneyard. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave us a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening.
Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.